Hello, and welcome to Listed, a Forbes podcast about people, money, and power. I'm your co-host, Maggie McGrath. And I'm your other co-host, Abe Brown. And today, the royal we are talking about royal families and royal fortunes. My country, tis of thee? How was the Star Wars Cantina song? I haven't seen a lot of Star, Star Wars, but it's definitely not that. Maybe I'm, I have carbonized sickness. Not a reference I get. <laughs> well, maybe I'm dazed and confused, but I think that was just God Save the Queen. Which is fitting, given what we're about to discuss today. Yes, it's like they layered it over onto the intro song in post-production, like they knew what we were going to talk about. I'm shocked, but I'm also so excited because today (laughs) we are going to talk about one of the hottest news stories of 2020. Abe, do you know where I'm going with this? Does it involve two people named Harry and Meghan? It does. And then so many more people as well? So many more people. We're going to talk about all this. Can you name all the people? You know I can. No, we had to sit down and I had to talk you through the Georges, the Edwards, the, the Hanovers, the Stuarts. Anyway, before we go down the rabbit hole of royals, I want to know from you, Abe, if you were queen for a day, what would you do? So if I was queen for a day, I would make a rule. And Mm -hmm. this rule would be I am not just queen for today. I'm queen for the day after that. The following day after that, I would make the same rule because I don't just seek power for a day. I seek absolute power. I reject, (laughs) just as I've rejected other things you've said in our recording so far, I reject, that's like asking a genie for more wishes. Like Just because you're not trying to outsmart the genie doesn't mean I'm not going to. This genie was slow on her uptake and I'm Jafaring it over here. What do you want from me? I'd expect nothing less from you. I just suppose I was looking for something a little grander, like buying an island or a sports team or a racehorse. I've got to concentrate on maintaining my reign, and I may do other things in my day. I'm just telling you what I would do, what would be the major focus of my day, which is to have tomorrow and not just today. That's very selfish. I'm leaning into it. That's what funny. about what about you, Maggie? I've, Please tell me you have like some very high-minded, high-concept, munificent bit of bounty over there that you're going to do on your in your day. I do actually. After you rejected my proposal to fix the subways as my queen for the day activity, <laughs> um, I thought a bit bigger. And days are long, so I'm going to start early. There are 24 hours in them, I'm going to start. Well, I'm going to sleep. I'm not a morning person, so I'm going to give myself till about 8 a.m. at least. And then I'm going to convene a panel. It's going to be more like 10 a.m. Sorry, go ahead. My first meeting of the day will be to convene a a panel to institute universal health care. Then we are going to move on to a panel of scientists to implement male birth control via the pill. I need there to be a pill for men. I've been taking the pill forever, and this I just is... wish there were a male equivalent. Hold on. I'm not done. Then I'd have an, a, you know, a really extravagant lunch. I'd get all the best desserts uh, from around the world. And then 
The afternoon would be spent planning high-speed rail across the country, which would really improve the lives of everyone. And then for my last act, I would give myself a little budget, a big budget, really, private plane, fly to the Seychelles, and give myself a nice two-week vacation on the beach after doing all that good for humanity. Okay. Um, you know what? Uh, sure, Maggie. In- enjoy your very busy day trying to do good. I will. I, if I could get all those things done, can you imagine how much better life would be for me <laughs> and women, women around the world? Well, we're going to talk about one woman in particular today. We're going to talk about Queen Elizabeth. We're going to talk about Queen Elizabeth's grandchildren, Harry and Meghan. And we're going to talk broadly about many different rich rulers out there. Just a brief listening note, today's structure is going to be a little different. Yes, that's right. Because Forbes has been reporting on the world's wealth and also cultural capital for so many years, we have such a depth of knowledge, and that exists beyond just one reporter. So for this episode, we talked to three different Forbes editors and writers, and we're going to be hearing from all of them and their perspective on royal wealth. Earlier this week, I sat down with Louisa Kroll in the studio. She's our executive editor. She's a returning guest. She's our longtime former billionaire's editor. She is going to tell us about how you put together this list. And my first question for her was, what is the secret to tracking these the, the wealth of the royals versus tracking the wealth of the normal billionaires? And here's Louisa. Well, I'm not sure there's ever a secret to all of this. It's the same as the way we approach valuing wealth of a ultra-rich billionaire. Mm -hmm. Uh, We start by looking at their assets and trying to figure out how much they're worth. What makes this list different is that uh, what is blurry is what is really theirs versus what belongs to the government that they're governing, you know, the lands that they're ruling. It's not like they can all of a sudden turn around and decide to give their fortune away to their, um, you know, ex-wife or their friend in another country. Um, What what they have stays in their country, and and once they abdicate the throne, um, they no longer have uh, access to much of their fortune. Let's talk about a couple of the rulers, royals that you valued in the past. Who stands out when we t- when we bring these people up? Probably the most interesting monarch or the one who certainly wins the most points for a, an outrageously opulent lifestyle is the Sultan of Brunei, who we last valued at around $20 billion. Mm-hmm. He became crown prince at the age of 15. Uh, He lives in a palace that supposedly has more than 1,700 rooms, over 250 bathrooms. He's a collection of Rolls Royces, uh, and um, he's also well known for his brother, uh, the Prince Jeffrey, um, who apparently absconded with something like $15 billion at one point. Oh, my. How dare he? Exactly. And he was later sued um, but you know, he apparently uh, was uh, reported to be a sex addict. Oh uh, it was picked up a lot in the tabloids, uh, and he was also well known for having a, a yacht that he named, and I kid you not, tits. So that kind of <laughs> gives you a sense of just how yes. outrageous. Uh, gives you a sense of uh, who the prince is. Yes. It was, was it the prince or the That's sultan the with prince. the That's improper. The prince. Okay. But the sultan also is very well known for his over the top lifestyle. Are there any other rulers that 
spring well, to mind? A couple, a couple that stand out is, uh, well, certainly when we were doing it, he lives a much quieter lifestyle now. But Prince Albert of Monaco, okay, his mother was the American film is that actress Grace Kelly's Grace son. Kelly. Okay. Yep, and he was for many years one of the uh, world's most eligible bachelors. He married a South African Olympian swimmer, and um, they now live fairly quietly. But what I think is so interesting about him is that uh, the principality that he oversees and that he gets his approximately a billion dollar fortune from is about the size of New York's Central Park or about three times the size of the mall in Washington, D.C. But it's a, you know, it's a beautiful principality in the south of France and the real estate value there is. I've never been to Monaco, have you? Yes. That's where the 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 casino casino is, right? Yes, Yes, very beautiful. Okay, so that was just a ton of detail from Louisa. And I think a lot of people know about Grace Kelly and Monaco. I want to go back because if you missed this, it's wild. The Sultan of Brunei has 250 bathrooms. Like, what do you need with all those bathrooms? I don't, they're not just for him. I'm sure he has a royal harem to support or something to that extent. Okay, but like, are, I would love to see the designs, 250 different designs of 250 bathrooms. Look, if you can afford... 250 bathrooms, you and I are 253 designers for them. I'm I'm sure you're right. But I should also note, it. we're working with slightly dated information here. The last time we did this list was 2011. So can you explain why we haven't done this list since? Well, that's a question I asked Louisa when she was in the studio, and here's her answer to that. Well, quite honestly, the reason that we've stopped doing it is I think the last time we did the richest royals, there were about 800 billionaires around the world. Mm -hmm. There are now over 2,000. We just cannot keep valuing everybody again and again. And the fact that they do not represent entrepreneurial wealth, they're kind of a lower priority for us as a business magazine. I bet they would be very unhappy to hear that. (laughs) Have any of them actually complained about that? There was one time, probably close to a decade ago, Queen Beatrix, who is the queen of the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. we received a fax. And yes, it was in those days when faxes were still What's a fax, Louisa? (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost tempted to define it. But if you don't know what it is, Google it. Um, But anyway, we got a letter from her uh, husband, the the prince. um, And this is what it said. I brought it along. I thought it'd be fun. It is worth noting that the fortune of the Dutch royal family arises from their foresight in buying a significant stake in what became part of Royal Dutch Shell Group of Companies. That is getting pretty close to a conventional entrepreneurial approach, isn't it? (laughs) So basically what that's saying is that he was upset that we called them part of the royals, the richest royals, and didn't include them on the billionaires list. He wanted us to know that, in fact, they were quite entrepreneurial and it was uh, a mischaracterization to say they just inherited the fortune. They wanted the Forbes seal of approval. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, we do look at it on an individual basis when there is a monarch or a monarchy in the news, which kind of brings us around to why we pay attention to Queen Elizabeth and her family. Um, You know, obviously, the world fascination with her and with her heirs is uh, pretty extraordinary, you know, whether it's uh, Mexit or the TV show The Crown, there is a oh, tremendous interest. You're so a Crown that watcher, is, too. Yes, I am. So that is 
why they are the only family right now that we do continue to uh, value. But if something came up uh, that was really newsy and interesting, then we would take a look at updating somebody else's fortune. That was our interview with Louisa Kroll. We are still fascinated by the queen. We're going to keep talking about her. We're going to hear from the reporter who's been covering her for the past few years for us. Her name is Denise Chum, and she sat down with Maggie and I a few days ago in the studio. Here's some tape from that conversation. So one thing that's interesting to me and I didn't know before 2016 is that a lot of the things that we associate with the royal family, the queen actually doesn't own. So Buckingham Palace, she doesn't own, or all the jewelry, um, you know, we see she does have a private collection, obviously. But um, a lot of the stuff are actually under um, the monarchy, and the monarchy has a bunch of different trusts. The main one is the Crown Estate, which I didn't know about at the time. So the Crown Estate basically is worth billions of dollars. It's a real estate trust. Um, It owns the palaces, most of them. And it also has um, properties across London, um, England. It has major energy investments. Um, The crown jewels, they are the same. Um, She doesn't own any of that, but she gets to use them as long as she is the monarch. Um, But all of that to say, um, if she were to own all of the things under the Crown Estate or the Royal Collection Trust or the Crown Jewels, she would be worth something like $25 billion, which would actually make her the richest person in the UK and the sixth richest woman in the world. Now, I think we give her uh, a net worth estimate of what, $600 million, something around there? $500 million. $500 million. How do we, How do we separate Queen Elizabeth you know, from the monarchy? How are they two different things? So she owns things as an individual. Okay. And those are things like the Balmoral Castle. She owns the Sandringham House. Balmoral, we value at a hundred million dollars, a million pounds. And Sandringham is something around 500 million pounds. And these are at least, they could be worth much, much more. Mm -hmm. So we know that those things she actually directly owns. And we know that anything that's listed under the crown estate, she definitely does not own. And the monarchy as as an institution owns all of that. So she has the castles and the houses. In addition to that, um, she, this is very interesting. She has one of the rarest stamp collections in the world. Okay. So she actually has all the British stamps ever. That's impressive. Except for one. (gasps) What is she missing? Uh, It's called British Guiana. And it was sold a few years ago, and she was not the one to buy it. And it was sold for approximately uh, $10 million. If our listeners are anything like me, they're wondering at this point who the heck owns this stamp. My bet's on Sinn Féin. Denise says it's actually an anonymous buyer who bought the thing via phone. And I still want to know how badly the queen wants that stamp. If I were her, I'd be dying. I'd have my own footman on the case. Uh, corgis. Corgis smelling smelling and hunting down the stamp. I feel like there are more efficient ways to track down a missing stamp. Or I guess it's not missing. It's it, hidden in, in the home hidden. of a, a wealthy hidden. person. Unleash the corgis. But I think we'll probably in the end never know. But what we do know more about is one of my favorite subjects, jewelry. Why are you smiling like that? Because diamonds are a girl's best friend and this girl's birthstone. Oh, my. All right. Well, we did ask Denise about that, and here she is telling us about it. 
as far as we know, she owns this um, Cartier tiara that used to um, be owned by the Queen of Belgians. So when I was doing my reporting, that was the main thing that I came across like as one of the most expensive jewelry that she owns. And I estimated around a million dollars. But, you know, it's the Queen's tiara. It could be worth a lot more than that. priceless, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But I can say that the one that Meghan Markle wore, which is called um, the Queen's, Queen Mary's Bandeau tiara, as far as I can remember. So that one is owned by the Royal Collection Trust. So technically the Queen can use it, but it's not hers personally. This is probably a good opportunity to talk about uh, Queen Elizabeth's descendants and their finances. And Queen Elizabeth's fortune is kind of murky and hard to peer into, and it's even harder to do with uh, her her grandchildren. Tell us a little bit about uh, Prince Harry and Meghan. Um, the Queen gets money from the Crown Estate, and those are for um, official expenses. And there are other structures in place, other trusts that are owned by the monarchy that benefits the family, but the family doesn't directly own those. So through Prince Charles, the kids are able to get uh, some pocket money that they can use on things that they want to do. But um, Pocket money? Yes. <laughs> um, we were talking millions of dollars in pocket money. Yes, millions okay. of dollars. And according to our estimates, um, in order to live the royal lifestyle that Meghan and Harry have been living in the past year or so, they would have to make something like $3 million a year. So that's what they get from... Um, you know, um, the monarchy. Mm -hmm. So now you've heard from our resident wealth expert, Louisa Kroll, and our queen expert, Denise Chum. But sitting right across from me is actually our resident history expert. Abe, I'm going to turn the tables and interview you because you wrote a really great piece that kind of looks at the historical context for everything that's going on with the monarchy right now. Specifically, I got assigned to come up with a way for Harry and Meghan to earn money. And if they're smart, they'll read my piece and I'll take a finder's fee. I researched how other royals, when they've been when they've left behind the throne or they have been banished, how did these royals in exile live and how did they make money? And by and large, it's very different. They each have earned money in different ways. A lot of it's like they cobble together, beg, borrow, whatever, from their whatever supporters they've left. But one thing stood out to me. Many of them have written books. All right. Before we go into the books, which we will do, you have to first tell us about what you refer to as the Kaiser and his tchotchkes. This was back in 1922. It's precedent for Meghan and Harry. Abe, tell us what's going on. Well, it's probably something that Harry and Meghan would never do uh, the Kaiser, of course, is uh, Wilhelm II. He's the de- deposed German monarch after World War One. He is living in the Netherlands. He is broke. He is trying to support himself. He stages a- an auction of his personal possessions because who wouldn't want to have a Kaiser cigarette tray or commode? And um, unfortunately, <laughs> the auction doesn't go very well. It has a disappointing turnout and doesn't. And it, he raises you know, a few thousand dollars. Very soon after that, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm happens upon a different idea and it turns out to be a surefire way to make money and it is his book have you read his book i have not read his book damn it i really wanted an a brown book review a la mackenzie bezos i was looking forward to you tearing into the kaiser's well so i did not read it i cannot give you a criticism of it however at the time it was widely panned people thought the kaiser buried the lead 
that he didn't get fast enough to what people wanted to read about, which is, of course, ruling over the losing country of World War One, the Great War, uh, as they called it then. Um, one Parisian paper called it the called him the great criminal of our age and retitled his book from the Kaiser's memoirs to memoirs of a blockhead. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, uh, I love the a, French. Great, so I guess the other thing Harry and Meghan are going to have to keep in mind is not only is there a long tradition of royalty writing books, there is a long tradition of these books being widely criticized as well. But not every royal has been the subject of widespread disdain when they've come out with a book. You're probably talking about Fergie, right? I am. I've, I, I, I've always been interested in her. I'm a long time, as I think I've said before, a long time People magazine reader. She's been in People. There's been a lot of fascination around Fergie, but her book did really well. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Right. So Fergie was the much tabloid splash ex-wife of Prince Andrew. Uh, that's Harry and Meghan's uncle. She'd received a million pound settlement from Buckingham Palace, but that wasn't enough. She had also, in 1996, written a book called My Story. The key to these books seem to be very simple, simple titles with your name underneath it. This book appeared at the uh, on top of the New York Times bestseller list for seven weeks, peaking at number five. So apparently people did want to hear from her. So, Abe, after looking back at the past royals and their memoirs, what would you tell Meghan and Harry? A book is a pretty sure far away for them to make money pretty quickly because in the book world you get an advance and then you get a cut of the sales as well. You know, Megan could go back to work as a Hollywood actress, sure, but her that is not going to be an immediate cash flow. Like people really are going to want to hear from them as we've seen over the past few months and as I expect we'll continue to see. And book deals are a good way to make some money very quickly. One agent that I talked to said that the, that they could, if they package themselves together, kind of like the Obamas, and they did a series of books, they could take them $50 million from all of this, which is just a staggering figure. Especially because we, we had pegged that they were living a lifestyle of about expenditures of about $3 million a year, $50 million book deal, that buys you a lot of plane flights to the Caribbean or wherever the hell they're going. I mean, I, I'm buying their book. If they're coming out with a book, I'm For buying sure. it. And so it, it, that feels justified almost. And, you know, your immediate, you know, I would buy that is why these books have been successful. We all want to hear from them, even if these books do tend to have a shallowness to them. Like, you know, they're not spilling all the royal tea, right? They're just, you know, they're giving us little drips and drabs, but we are so fascinated by them. We want it. We are just we cannot get enough. It's like the Taylor Swift documentary. Actually, you get little dribs and drabs of her life. Most of it you already know. It's still kind of opaque. But in the end, it's fascinating because you learn just that much more about her life. And yes, it's just like Taylor Swift. You're rolling your eyes at me, but I think those who have seen Miss Americana know what I'm talking about. You disagree. But anyway, clearly, Meghan and Harry have a lot to gain. They potentially also have a lot to lose. I know I'm fascinated by this story as it continues to unfold, as are so many other Americans. I also know that our colleagues in our London office feel quite differently. They have to live with this on a daily basis and I think are a bit sick of it. So to get a proper British perspective, I called Tom Brewster in our London office. He's a cybersecurity reporter, so this is not his beat. But he has lived in the UK all of his life. Tom was born in the north of England and now lives in London. And here's a little bit of my interview with him. When I come into work, uh, most days I actually walk right past Buckingham Palace, um, coming in from Victoria Station, and it is—I mean, it is like a massive haven for um, for tourists. 
and it, and it looks always constantly busy and obviously it must be a driver for tourism whether or not you need the royal family um, itself to still be an institution to drive that tourism I don't think that that's the case I mean you know you still have the the legacy of it you still have the the buildings and the history itself and the narratives there so whether or not you need you know the, the actual royal family to be alive and still a still a thing is 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 questionable to me and mm-hmm. i think to to i don't know I, I don't know how much of a percentage of the population it is now but certainly a lot of the people that are in my i guess age range and um uh, background would, would probably feel the same no, that's a good point. I mean, people visit Paris and, you know, Louis XIV is no longer alive. There's no royal family in Paris, and yet people still visit those historical structures and places and things. So you may not actually need a, a royal family. I think it's like a, a demographic and geographic thing, right? I mean, in London, where I've lived for a decade, I think people don't care as much, especially people who live here, because, um, you know, it's just part of everyday existence. You just don't think about it. It's taken for granted. And, you know, you're kind of accepting it's there, but you don't really care about it. And But then if you go out of London and you go to more conservative parts of the country, for instance, Cornwall, which is like southwest, which is where my grandma's from. You know, if you go and ask my grandma, she'll be, you know, fervently pro-royal um, because, you know, that's a deeply conservative part of the U.K., I think it's pretty safe to say that Tom does not agree with Grandma Tom. Tom believes that all the royals should probably just cease to exist. Grandma Tom. That's cute. Yeah, I mean, to him, the royals are a big waste of time and money. They're kept relevant mostly by a massive PR machine that keeps them in the papers and the tabloids and magazines here in the States. And he and others are resentful that taxpayer dollars have to fund rehabilitation of cottages that the royals live in and other properties. Cottages in quotes. Cottages in quotes. Their travel, myriad other activities that, you know, money could be go elsewhere for better, better causes. Better causes? I think there's probably more humanitarian outlets for that money than... This goes back to your problem with, like, being a very workmanlike queen. You have to think grander. You have to think about cottages. You have to think about travel. You have to think about enjoying enjoying oneself. I did end my day of queen queendom in the Seychelles on the beach. I think that's fine. For, for two weeks. You were only there for two weeks. Uh, a two-week vacation is more vacation time than I've taken in a long time. At the end of the day, Tom would probably say that Harry and Meghan fleeing Britain for North America was a step in the right direction. Exactly. You know what? I want my queen for the day to start right now, and I declare that it is time for segments. We are starting with triplicate. Your wish is my command. So, Maggie, would you rather be the queen's corgi, the queen's footman, or the queen's sister? That's a really tough one because there were reports a few years ago that she was tripping over her corgis. So while they live the royal life, I, I think I'd live in fear for my safety. Her footman, I don't I don't like taking directions. So I think by default that makes me her sister. But that's Princess Margaret, right? Yes, that is Princess Margaret. She's a boss. And my name's Margaret. Th- duh. Easy answer. All right, Pegs. The really important thing here is that you're overlooking the corgis. You're overlooking the corgis. I- 
I just gave my Look, reasoning. If I can't be queen, then I just want to be the queen's corgis because the queen loves animals. It's very well known that what she really wanted to do in life was to breed horses and breed corgis. I want to live a pampered six inch height tall life in the in the corridors of Buckingham, you know, and with my other little corgi friends just scurrying around. That's not the sound corgis make. And also, good luck not getting stepped on. <laughs> I'm very quick. I'm very nimble. I want to turn to another one of our crown jewels in our listed vault. It is the Robinson Crusoe Award. And this is where we speculate on who we would like to spend some time with on a desert island. Maggie, start us off. What royal family member, what, I guess, even royal in general, would you want to be deserted with? Kate Middleton. That was very fast. Explain. I love her wardrobe. I love her style. She can't take it with her. Yes, but I feel like she could give me some pointers. Have you you not seen Castaway? Yeah, and you, you get a little disheveled on a, on a desert and island. And Tom Hanks did amazing things with a volleyball. I feel like Kate and Middleton could do amazing things with the natural Kate, resources on the island. Are you saying Kate Middleton is as interesting as volleyball? I, I feel like that was your assumption, but anyway, I just I want all of her tips for a living. Abe, what about you? I'm gonna steal from our triplicate segment. I'm going to steal the queen's sister because I think Princess Margaret would be a fucking blast to be stranded with on a desert island. I've actually seen that episode of The Crown in which she goes to her privately owned desert island and she had a beautiful time in Jamaica, which I guess, it, all right, maybe it's got some beaches, not fully desert, but you know what? Margaret knew how to party. Isn't that right, Margaret? Maggie's know how to have a good time. I've had a great time with you today, Maggie. Talking Queens, Harry and Meghan, Rish's Rulers, and we owe a special thanks to the guests who joined us for this rollick around Buckingham, Louisa Kroll, Denise Chum, and Tom Brewster. Links to all the articles we discussed will be in the show notes. And never forget, we want to become podcast royalty, so please, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your co-host, Maggie McGrath, editor of Forbes Women. And I'm your other co-host, Abe Brown. I'm a senior editor at Forbes. Listed as a Spoke Media production. Kieran Meadows records with us in studio. And so does our producer, Reva Goldberg. Our theme song is composed and performed by Will Short. Our production team is Caroline Hamilton, John Villalobos, and Will Short at Spoke Media. And a thanks to our Privy Council, Travis Collins, Kyle Kramer, Randall Lane, and Dario Furutan here at Forbes. See you next week. Bye. Bum, 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 bum. Oh. That's Here Comes the Bride. Yeah, I know. It's, it's all the same in my mind. Is it?